Hey, Drew Dixon back with another Bible Thump for you. And uh, we're continuing this series on identity. And last week we talked about the third piece of our identity as image bearers. We talked throughout this whole series, I've been making the argument that our identity, who we are at the most fundamental level, um, how we see ourselves and how we see the world is really important because it's going to shape how we live. It's going to shape how we see our story and our place in the world. And so, um, it's going to shape how we, how, how we do life in a really profound way. And so, from the very beginning, the Bible paints a really good and beautiful and I think dignified vision of God's intentions, His design for humanity, which defines, I believe, defines our identity in a really powerful way. And so, um, we've looked at three aspects of what it means to bear God's image. We said that it means we are rulers. So, the, the um, idea of bearing God's image is, is a royal image. In every other ancient worldview uh, that, that dates back to the time of the Hebrew Bible, um, there was only one person in most every other culture that was believed to be an image bearer of God, and that was the king or the emperor, whoever was in charge, right? Because if you were the the image bearer, you were the one that represented, reflected God's kingship, his reign, his his authority. And so, so only the king would be considered an image bearer. This was true in ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt. In fact, in ancient Egypt, this, this was... Uh, taken to mean, hey, you should worship the emperor, right? Because he's the he's the you should worship the pharaoh because he's the representative of of God or of the gods. And so um, the Bible begins with saying, no, everyone, male and female, is made in God's image. So God takes all of humanity and gives them this royal, um, dignified. Uh, design and, and, and title as, as his image bearers. And so, uh, that's part of what it means to bear God's image. We're to rule, we're to be good stewards over this world, we're to take care of it, we're to, to inhabit it in a way that brings order and beauty and benefit out of it for the good of others. And so, that goes into the second aspect of our identity, is that immediately after making people in his image, God gives them this task of working and keeping the garden. And so, we spent a couple weeks talking about what it means to work in a way that glorifies God and brings good into the world. We talked about how there's dignity in the work that we do. We talked about how work gives us the opportunity to reflect God's goodness back into the world, right? To to go into places that are formless and void. In other words, where things aren't at their fullness yet, where things aren't aren't bearing their complete potential, and then, and then bring potential out of them for, for the good of others, right? To join God in His work of, you know, He's the first worker, and He invites us to share in His work. And then last week, we began talking about this third aspect of our identity, and that's that we're to reflect God's goodness and glory and, and justice back into the world, right? Um, this is what images do by their very nature, is they reflect a reality. And so, we're called to reflect the goodness, the beauty, the justice, uh, the mercy of God back into the world. And so, we started that conversation, and this may be weird to you, but we started that conversation by talking about heaven and sort of breaking down some of our misconceptions about heaven. Because this plays into our identity. How we, how we think about the way things are going to end up uh, the end of our lives, how things are going to go, uh, maybe when we're, we depart from this world, um, that's going to tell us a lot about how we inhabit this world. 
what we think is going to happen in the end is going to tell us a lot. It's going to shape to a great degree how we inhabit this world. So there's this common idea amongst a lot of Christians that when we die, we'll just go be with Jesus in this disembodied, like, eternal state of bliss, like it's an eternal church service or something. Um, and and there's a couple passages in the Bible that indicate that when we die, we will go to be with Jesus um, if we if we trusted Him. Um, you know, there's the thief on the cross. There's Paul in Philippians one, where Paul says. Um, you know, Paul's about potentially going to be executed. He's in prison while he's writing the book of, book of Philippians, and he says, "You know, which would be better for me to go on uh, living and working and encouraging people like you, people like the church at Philippi, or would it be better to die and be with Christ?" He says, "It would be better to die and be with Christ, but I know I need to keep on working because it would be better for you." Um, so, sort of resigns himself, even though he'd like to go and be with Jesus. So, so those passages tell us that if we if we trust Jesus and we die, we get this wonderful promise that we'll go to be with him. But that's basically it. Otherwise, when the Bible talks about eternity, it envisions a resurrection, not only of human bodies, but of the world, a renewal of the world, God stepping into the broken world in which we inhabit and bringing new life, of resurrecting it, renewing it. And so, we get these really wonderful visions in, book, in, in books like Isaiah, and Isaiah 65 of this new heavens and a new earth, which are pictures of, of God healing and, and restoring everything that's broken about our world. And uh, so, really, I want to make the argument that the vision that the Bible paints of the end is about uh, the powerful, life-transforming, cataclysmic kingdom of heaven breaking into our world such that it's never the same. And so, I think that's why Jesus said when we pray, we should pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth, the human sphere, as it is in heaven, the sphere of God. So, God, bring your reign and rule, bring your perfect justice to bear on our broken world, and that's, that's the end that we look forward to. But that's also a reality that God's already begun through the work of Jesus, and it's a work that He invites us to participate in now. And I think we'll see that as we look at Colossians chapter 3. Um, so, that's what I'm going to do today. I want to read some from Colossians 3 to you, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. Talk about heaven, and then talk about how it reflects our identity. We'll also talk about who Jesus is, because we've talked about you know, um, what it means to bear God's image, and we'll see that Jesus did that in a way that no one has done before. So, let's check this out. Colossians 3, verse 1. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living among them, but now put away the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, away from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. You, you are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your Creator." Do you see that? Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self, verse 9, and its practices, 
and have put on the new self, verse 10, you are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, Paul doesn't actually mention heaven in this passage. Actually, he doesn't mention it once. But he commands us to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, even though he doesn't use the word heaven, he has in mind not necessarily the eternal resting place of disembodied human beings, you know, of, of human souls, but what, has, what he has in mind is the realm of God, right? He commands us to seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, we are to set our minds to thinking about Jesus' position of exaltation and authority, not our eternal destination. I think one is more important than the other. And Paul says what's most important for us to think about while we're here on earth is where Jesus is seated, where he is seated in a position of power. This is Psalm 110 language. This is kingdom language. Set your minds. And Psalm 110 is a royal psalm. There's all these psalms in the, in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, these songs that are designed to, to look forward to a coming king. And Psalm 110 is one of the most important ones, one of the most quoted ones in the Bible. And so, uh, Paul's alluding to that here very deliberately and, and saying, we're talking about a kingdom here. Set your minds on the king who sits high and above and whose enemies lie utterly defeated at his feet. Paul's hope is not that we would stop getting caught up in this world and start thinking about the streets of gold that, that, we, that we are looking forward to. Um, but he says... What he wants us to be caught up in is the cataclysmic power of his resurrection, the, the radical transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to set our minds on. To be fair, Paul does speak of a future hope in these verses that's not entirely unlike what we think of when we think of heaven. So, in verse 4 he says, When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But when will we appear with him in glory when he, when Jesus appears, not when we die, not when you die, not when I die, but when he appears at the return of Jesus or at his appearing. So, here's what I want to say to you about heaven. It's not an escape from this present world, but a restoration of this world that began with Jesus in his first coming and will be completed at his return. Why is this important? It's important because glory comes on God's timetable, on Jesus' timetable, not ours. It's also important to know how this verse describes Jesus, right? Christ, when Christ, this stuff's going to happen, we're going to appear with him in glory when Christ, who is your life, appears. 
Paul said something in Colossians 1.27. He said, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. According to Paul, if you're a follower of Jesus, Christ is your life, and He's in you. Did you catch that? The hope of glory is in you. It embodies you. It's part of who you are now. It's part of your identity. The king through whom and for whom all things exist, who holds everything together and has conquered every rebel power, dwells in you. You see how that has the power to reshape our identity? And you see how that narrative of thinking that the Christian life is just about believing Jesus so one day we get to die and go to this place of eternal bliss misses the point of the identity that God has given you now and the good work God wants to do in you now and the ways God wants to work in through through in and through your heart and life now to reflect his glory into a broken world that needs hope now. You are an agent of the transforming power of Christ's kingdom, of the hope that embodies his kingdom. You are an agent, you are a conduit, you are a a manifestation of that hope in the here and now. And God wants you to adopt that identity. According to Paul, if you're a Christian, Christ is in you. And the power of his glory, the hope of his glory dwells in you. So, this entire passage is addressed to Christians, to those who have been raised with Christ. Um, Set yourself to thinking about our great and glorious King who conquered not by military might, not by military conquest, but by sacrificing Himself. Think about His upside-down kingdom where the humble are exalted, where those who are truly alive are dead to sin but alive to God. In other words, Paul does not launch into telling us to put to death what is earthly in us and instead put on compassion, kindness, humility, and meekness just as a means to getting us to think about whether or not we're saved, whether or not we've been reconciled to God, though that's worth talking about and thinking about. He launches into these subjects because these are the things we ought to be constantly doing as renewed resurrected people. You see, this is a text, and I think the whole Bible is a text about our vocation in God, our vocation in Christ, what we're to do in the world as part of, you know, as as these conduits, as these messengers, as these embodiments of His grace and goodness and love. So, in other words, the resurrection isn't just an event that happened in the past that we have to believe in if we want to be saved. It's a power that is at work in us, changing us from the inside out. And Paul's challenge is for for us to double down on the resurrection, to embrace it not just as a fact, but to think about it constantly, to constantly consider the implications of Jesus and the resurrected King, to embrace this not just as fact, but to consider its implications, right? To consider what the resurrection means for you and what it's accomplished for you and for me. According to Paul, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are right now, as we speak, you are a resurrected creature, a new human. The image of God has been resurrected and renewed in you. And so, Paul's exhortation to put off all these things, all these these selfish values and these these destructive tendencies that we have, and then to put on these these good values and life-giving tendencies, um, or rather to put to death 
these things that are earthly in us and to put on these things that are alive in Christ. But, you know, this, all these, these ethics that he talks about in, at, at the end of this chapter of, of, of Colossians 3, this is not a, not a call to, to get real introspective and be like, oh, where have I messed up? And where am I doing good? And what needs to change? I mean, that's part of it. But, but this is a summary of who we are. This is a summary of who you are now as someone who has chosen to follow Jesus, as someone who's joined in his resurrected kingdom. This is a summary of who we are and what we are to be and what we are to be about and what we're to do in the world. It lays out for us our primary business as renewed image bearers of the king. Um, and so, I want you to know um, that Jesus embodies all things, all these things, these these ethics towards the end of Colossians 3 to perfection. And so, next week, we're going to talk about the one true image bearer, the one person who got bearing God's image right, the one person who nailed what it means to be human, the only person that's got what it means to be human, like, just nailed it, got it right. We're going to talk about it the next week and see how Jesus embodies these qualities and calls us to join in his resurrection life by embodying these values uh, in our lives now as we look forward to the day when we are raised up to be with him. And that's an exciting day. But knowing that that day's coming, that's what shapes how we live now. Knowing that this world's not just going to be thrown in the garbage heap, but rather is going to be resurrected and renewed, shapes and changes how we live now and how we see the world. This is not a place where we're to, to think of as just being thrown in the dump. This is a place that God loves so much he's going to resurrect it and renew it. The same with our bodies. Your body is not, is not something God's just going to throw away one day, but it's something he intends to resurrect from the dead. Your uh, physical embodiment, your life in this world matters, and the people around you, their lives matter too, and God wants us to live in a way that brings his order and beauty and benefit to bear, on our lives and theirs for his glory and for the good of the world uh, it's an exciting and dignified calling it's it, there's so much potential in you and in this calling so thanks for your time can't wait to dig into Colossians 3 a bit more with you next week um, it's it's holidays now so uh, so Merry Christmas and remember Jesus loves you nerd <laughs>